Microbial Nation, and welcome to another episode of The Micro Moment, that show that takes you down to the microscopic level to view the world just a little bit differently. I'm your host, Tess. I'm John. And I'm Julie. And we are back again talking about bioterrorism from the 17th to the 19th century. This is episode two for this time era, episode four in our whole bioterrorism season. So if you've missed any of the ones from the past, go ahead and check back at them. Did you check my math? Was it four? Yeah, it checks out. I, I, I was counting on my fingers. All right, nice. If we got past five, I would have been in trouble. Yeah, you only got five fingers. Well, then I got ten, well, on one hand, yeah. And I'm I'm holding my trick in the other. So if you got <laughs> so that past hand's five, not useful. Yeah, no. It would have been a situation, okay? It would have been a whole situation. Good thing we only had four. <laughs> Anywho, here we go. We're going to talk about two different bioterrorism times that happened between the 17th and 19th century. Actually, our last anecdote goes all the way until World War I, which means that our fifth episode in this forever dangerous bioterrorism season will be on World War II. And I do assure you that that will likely be a two-parter as well, because World War II, woo, did it have some bioterrorism in it. Dense. Very dense. So dense. We might need like a whole month to research that. I mean, we could. Probably two months and like not go to work so that we could research more. But if you don't know, World War II was bioterrorism's golden age. I mean, I would say yes, but that still sounds really weird. I know. It does. Anyways, I'm going to start us off with a few nuggets, bioterrorism nuggets, if you will, from the 17th to 19th century. And again, we're dealing with time periods where the local people, a lot of the commoners had no clue about microbes. And we're not talking until the 1860s that people really even connected microbes with germ theory. So a lot of what we are talking about, we do need to sort of put a little caveat on that we don't understand exactly what people's motives were or if they really understood the acts that they were committing. In World War II, though, they had no excuse. They were just evil, evil human beings. Yeah. But World War II had a lot of evil human beings. There's a lot of shady stuff that happened during that war. Yeah, perhaps the evilest in all of mankind's history. Womankind's, humankind's history. I don't know if I would say yes, but definitely top three for sure. Top three. All right, I'm interested in your top three, but maybe we'll do that off offline. Okay, so I talked about this a little bit last podcast, but I wanted to maybe put a little bit more um, context around it. Some of these little bioterrorism nuggets. These will not be full stories, but little little pieces. And then we'll get into my full story. And then Julie will talk a little bit about World War One and bioterrorism. This one will sound very familiar to anyone who listened to, you know, the previous podcast or even the previous episodes in this season. For those who didn't, I encourage you to go and listen to it for human history with biological weapons in medieval time is truly fascinating. We'll still be here when you get back. So go ahead, scurry off, get a little listen. Now that you're done, here we go into other ways to the 1710s where we meet Peter the Great. He rules Russia and is set on expanding Russian territory and having access to the Baltic Sea because water is important. We discussed that last episode as well. Very important. Swedish forces barricaded in Ravel, now known as Tallinn, Estonia, were in the way of Peter the Great's goal. Well, if they won't come out, he said, we'll throw something in. Peter the Great 
Great's Rush Peter the Great's Russian sh- soldiers hurled infected corpses over the city walls. Although, as far as I could tell, nothing really came of it, which I think was the conclusion of the last time we had someone hurling things, catapulting dead corpses into an area. That it didn't really cause a huge epidemic. I thought it was they were planning to, but they never carried it out. Oh, maybe that's what it was. But yeah, I I often find that a lot of these times where they try to commit bioterrorism, they actually didn't do a very good job at it. Perhaps it's harder than we're meant to believe. I would hope so. It, I would it hope gives so, me yeah. a little solace yeah. right now that bioterrorism is actually harder than mm-hmm. what we think. Well, actually, I think in all of the research that we did, it's given me a lot of solace in the fact that it happens so infrequently in history. We're talking thousands of years of history, and we can only come up with, I don't know, half a dozen, maybe a dozen different bioterrorist acts. It's not a lot. It really isn't. Compared to like how many times people have invented things to blow up to kill other people, it's it's really not a big way that people try to kill each other, which is good because it's... We don't need more things. We do not need more things. We need to focus on microbes and the good that they cause the world. Very true. But that is not what we're focusing on today or in the season of bioterrorism. But we're actually just talking about more the human villains, not the microbes. Anyways, let's flash forward a little bit to pre-America, pre-Revolutionary War as well, to smallpox. And I mentioned this a little bit in the last episode, but just putting a little bit more of a context around it. Smallpox was another really big bioweapon of the time, or perhaps merely an agent of chaos and destruction being passed back and forth amongst populations that had never seen the disease before. As I said in the last episode, uh, smallpox is known as a white man's disease and something that can easily be passed to different populations. And when a population has never seen it, it can have pretty catastrophic effects, causing massive amounts of destruction and significantly shaping the world we see today. Smallpox is a great contributor to the Native American populations during the time and their unfortunate demise, ultimately decimating their populations while being caught in the middle of imperial expansion in a war between the French and the British and later the Americans. They really had a not-so-great time during the 18th century. No. And even like going a little back a little further, that also includes the Aztecs as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a lot of uh, Native people from different countries have always been victims of white men disease as they came for imperialism, for expansion, for taking territory, for finding, what do they, they were all trying to find India, weren't they? Which never made sense to me, but I think that's because I looked at a, a map too early on in my life. <laughs> <laughs> you look at the world map, you're like, that that doesn't make a lick of sense. Yeah, that one never made sense to me. But I guess like before you could see something like that, maybe it made sense. I don't really know. It has long been said and repeated that in 1763, the British troops besieged at Fort Pitt, now Pittsburgh, during Pontiac's rebellion, passed blankets infected with smallpox virus to the Indians, which we now know as Native Americans, not Indians, because they didn't find India. They found America and the Native Americans, not the Indians. And I don't understand why people are still saying Indians because they're not Indians. I digress. Causing a devastating epidemic among their ranks. But smallpox was rampant through Native American populations long before this. And like many of our anecdotes during this time period, we may never know which of the tragic tales told today are seated in truth. 
which were mistakes from people not understanding infectious diseases as we do today, and which are legends passed down through history. What does seem to be true in the story, as far as I could tell, is Sir Geoffrey Amherst, commander-in-chief of the British forces in the American colonies, had two blankets and a handkerchief from the British smallpox hospital sent to Native American chiefs in a smallpox epidemic soon erupted. I do want to say one thing. I, I know a lot of diseases in the past are shrouded in history, but smallpox is one of the ones that is so, the symptoms are so pronounced, you can't not know it was smallpox. Right, yeah. Like we were talking in the last episode, a lot of things with malaria are so common amongst other diseases, but smallpox is so prominent and so different. It's not just like, oh, I feel tired and I have a fever and I'm a little red and I have a headache. Like the biggest thing is the pustules that form. Mm -hmm. Like it's very distinctive. Yeah, it is quite a terrible disease. So whether accidentally or purposefully, it was a tragic, tragic event. And of course, since we're talking about smallpox in the Americas, I got to call out Onsimus. Oh, I was wondering if you were going to uh, mention Onsimus. Oh, you know, I never, I never can forget Onsimus. Yep. 1721, smallpox came to Boston, and it was a black slave Onsimus who taught his owner, I hate saying that, so ugly, about the process of virul- virulation, which is the process of taking pus from one person who has the disease and putting it into a wound of someone who doesn't have the disease as a very early sort of stage vaccine prototype, I guess. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. So smallpox was very well known and very prominent across America um, and before that across Europe as well. So we can never really be sure what the motives were of people in the 18th century. Regardless, probably shouldn't have given the Native Americans those blankets. I was also really surprised when I found out that it was only two blankets and a handkerchief. Why a handkerchief? Seemed weird. Maybe it had a really pretty or intricate design. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, we're going to jump ahead past the Revolutionary War and into America's... Well, no, actually, we had multiple wars before this one, but into America's greatest deathly American war, most tragic, the Civil War. The Civil War. Civil War. Yeah, I would say probably the most tragic of our wars. Tragic for Americans, I guess. It's one of the only wars that was fought on American soil. Right. So the Civil War was a truly nasty war. And I'm not just talking about General Sherman's scorch earth strategy aimed to burn down the Confederacy's ability to sustain and supply its armies. I was actually going to mention Sherman. You You know about Sherman? Like, no one knows about Sherman. He was a pyromaniac. He burnt down the South. He was not... He was not a good general. And like, well, I mean, he was, I mean, his tactics did really help the Union to survive, but it was not very- The ethics behind it is very questionable. Highly unethical. Nor am I just talking about Gettysburg, where amidst the smoky haze of blood-soaked fields, the landscapes lay strewn with the lifeless bodies of fallen soldiers, echoing the haunting cries of the wounded and the sorrowful wails of the bereaved, a harrowing testament to the brutality and sacrifice of the war. And if you haven't been to Gettysburg, I highly suggest it. It's a very, very interesting place. I've been several times and I still learn more stuff every single time I go there. So much history is there. I'm so glad that they 
preserve that land and like understood its significance for 200 years later. Oh, yeah. As tragic and traumatic of an event it was. The Civil War was indeed a brutal conflict, and one of its most chilling episodes was a campaign led by a Confederate captain, Luke Pryor Blackburn. Have you heard of this? It's not ringing a bell for me. Yeah, because it didn't really do much, but I do think it's really interesting. So we're going to talk about Governor Blackburn. He came from Kentucky, was a fierce advocate for states' rights, staffed his house with slaves, and was his best interest. So it was in his best interest to ensure the Union did not win this war. And as a physician, he concocted a plan to use what he knew best to disrupt the war and turn the tides to the Confederate side. Wait, he was a captain? He was a physician. He was a and, physician. I- and he was a governor. Well, Maybe he was just a captain. I made up the governor piece. Oh, okay. Yeah. He was definitely a physician, though. Okay. Yeah. I think back then a lot of people held a lot of different places. I don't think he was governor. I made that up. Okay. Okay. It just sounded nice at the time. Thank you for correcting me. In the spring of 1864, I almost said Governor Blackburn. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Blackburn came up with his evil plan. A major yellow fever epidemic broke out in Bermuda, giving Blackburn all the ammunition he would need. Yellow fever was long known as the scourge of the South, killing 8,000 people in New Orleans in 1853, some nine years prior. Blackburn and his associates conspired to unleash yellow fever on the Union troops, knowing well the deadly consequences it would bring. Taking a page out of the 1763 Fort Pitt incident, they secretly shipped clothing and bedding that once belonged to those that fell victim to yellow fever. Their rationale, much like the bleach in your grocery bags thought during the early COVID days, was that the bedding and clothing would be contaminated with the virus and thus be spread to whoever touched it and then spread from person to person after that, creating an epidemic. They shipped these trunks up north to be auctioned off, hoping that the disease would spread among the northern forces. Wow. How did they they pull that off? Like, did they, they must have, like, labeled the shipments. Yeah. So as far as I could tell, there's a whole bunch of Confederates that were meeting up in Montreal in Canada. And so Blackburn was in Bermuda. He would stuff different clothing. I actually watched this uh, History Channel video on it and I thought it was really funny that they had you know they have their live action sort of role playing of the anecdote as it's being told and they had this guy all dressed up in his Civil War garb in Bermuda and they had this person dying on the bed and he just with his hands picks up all the bedding and shoves it in a trunk which I'm like (laughs) if you think that's going to spread disease to whoever touches it why are you touching it with your bare hands huh history channel huh Apparently, he never talked to Dr. Lister. Yeah, obviously. I mean, he believed in his plan, but he didn't really believe in his plan. You know what I'm saying? It made no sense, but I'm not sure the History Channel had a microbiologist being like, that makes no sense. But I'm here to tell you, History Channel, makes no sense. Also wearing that Confederate garb in Bermuda. That was was cotton. There's no way he was wearing that Confederate garb in Bermuda, that was way too hot. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. And plus, the war was not going on down there. You didn't have to wear your colors down there. Anyways, he would ship it up to Canada to one Godfrey Joseph Himes to smuggle the trunks into the north. 
And when he did so, Blackburn's plan would be complete. But Blackburn was double-crossed by a disloyal Confederate agent who blew the whistle on Blackburn's ploy, exposing this diabolical plan to the Union forces. So it never happened. Not that it would have happened if it did happen, and I'll get to why it wouldn't have happened even if it did happen, but it never happened because Joseph Himes went to, I think in Montreal, they went to the American embassy, embassy, something similar to that, and was like, hey, by the way, this trunk is here because so-and-so told me to bring it across, hoping that it cause an epidemic. And then on May 25th, 1865, the infamous yellow fever fiend, also known as Dr. Black Vomit, found himself in handcuffs after his arrest in Montreal. The New York Times proclaimed him as a hideous devil, the mastermind behind one of the most fiendish plots ever concocted by the wickedness of man. Oh, I love newspaper writing from the 19th century. Also, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but I am a little surprised that there were Confederates in Montreal. I mean, that's very far north. Yeah, well, so they met in Montreal as a way to sort of exploit the North. So this was actually, who is it, General Davis? Was he Jefferson Davis? He was the head of the Confederate had created this group up in Montreal. And their whole point was to come up with schemes to uh, basically destroy the North because they were pretty certain they were going to lose the war at this point. We're talking 1865. I think Civil War was pretty done by then, by the end of that year. So it's like a, a secret cell. Yes, exactly. So... Dr. Blackburn was held accountable for the dreaded outbreaks of yellow fever that had struck fear to the hearts of many. But Blackburn's plan was rooted in fallacy, as I alluded to earlier. Even if the trunks were delivered, yellow fever epidemic would never have started. Can I guess? Guess. I'm going to say it's because we don't have the right mosquitoes in the north to transmit it. Well, because they weren't transmitting mosquitoes. No, but like mosquitoes would bite someone that's infected with it, and then pass it to someone else. Yeah, but their whole ploy was someone bit a mosquito or someone got bit by a mosquito, got the disease, and then they were sleeping in the bedding and they were wearing the clothes and they were going to take the clothes in the bedding up north to give to the next person. Okay. But your idea is very close to what it actually is. Is it that you can't transmit yellow fever that method? Exactly. So yellow fever is caused by a virus of the flavivirus genus in the Flaviverdiae family. It's transmitted by people who get, or it's transmitted by mosquitoes that bite people, not through touching bedsheets or wearing clothing from someone who wore it. You cannot contract yellow fever from somebody else who has yellow fever unless you get bit by the same mosquito that is caught, that is carrying the virus. Okay. So, I mean, those bedsheets were basically without harm they could have sold them to the north but also it's kind of rude to steal a dead person's bed sheets and send it to another place in hopes that it'll kill somebody else just a slight faux pas one might say oh for sure a faux pas very evil evil deed indeed symptoms of yellow fever range from fever of course with aches and pains to severe liver disease with bleeding and yellowing of the skin called jaundice 
Blackburn's Yellow Fever campaign stands as a stark reminder of the one of the earliest instances of deliberate and purposeful biological warfare in history, with devastating consequences of those affected by the deadly epidemic. And I think this is really a turning point in all of the history of bioterrorism because it is a very calculated and planned act to give someone a very specific disease that is known to kill and destroy a population. And I don't know if anything that we've talked about before this was so specifically targeted. Yeah, in our previous episode, we I talked about uh, Napoleon setting the scene that would promote diseases, but not necessarily a specific disease. Yeah, not targeted towards a people, a population yeah. epidemic, which I think is really interesting, kind of sets the stage as we're moving forward. We're getting more sophisticated with our plans. We're getting more targeted with our execution. And just to wrap up the story a little bit, the main resources for the story came from the History Channel, as I said, the Washington Post and the CDC and European Center of Disease Prevention and Control. So with that, let's move away from the Civil War and into the early 20th century, where we talk about World War I. Julie, the floor is yours. Ooh, I, I do want to say, like, I am interested because I have an idea, but I don't know if I'm right at all. Have an idea of what? The disease. Of World War One. Yes. Mm. I'm not going to say what it is. All right. Leave people in suspense. I mean, I think I kind of know because they kind of talked about it in all my anthrax deep dives but that's what happens when you spend your life researching things that no one cares about except for you good listener who care a lot about our bioterrorism research or so i hope because i put a lot of time and effort to bring it to you and i hope you enjoy it julie the floor is yours talk about world war one and bioterrorism you sure now yes okay before i get into the disease i'm going to talk about I do want to uh, kind of say that there were starting to be rules about this. So in 1864, the first Geneva Convention was basically come up with the treatment uh, and the sick and wounded in war. And that also led to a couple of other conferences. And in 1874, there was a Brussels Peace Conference, which I, I think is an interesting little bit here I want to read you as what you said earlier about how it's getting, you know, we're getting more sophisticated and people are kind of doing this more on purpose. Um, but at the 1874 Brussels Peace Conference, uh, and this followed the Franco-Prussian War of 1871, regarding the means of injury to the enemy, it states in Article 12, the laws of war do not recognize in belligerent an unlimited power in the adoption of means of injuring the enemy. And Article B, according to that principle above, is especially forbidden for the employment of poison or poisoned weapons and the employment of arms, projectiles, or material calculated to cause unnecessary suffering. What does that even mean, unnecessary suffering? I think war is unnecessary suffering. Well, right. And, and they're talking about, I think they're saying it's okay to maybe kill somebody very quickly, straightforward, only a soldier with the, you know, whatever the conventional uh, methods are. But uh, certainly you can be unnecessarily 
suffering by a bullet wound. But so I think it it kind of shows kind of the evolution of our thought about this. But back in 1874, they were already thinking about the possibilities of making people sick during war. And they called it poison at that point because they didn't really have other words for it. Mm. There's also a lot of poisoning, actually, like snake venom, putting the tips of your arrows in snake venom or other toxins and, and doing that sort of poisoning as well. Yeah. And so like what we talked about during our medieval ones, you know, they were projectiling diseased bodies to see if they could, you know, spread that disease. They didn't understand the whole mechanics of it. But they knew close proximity was something uh, that would cause harm to the other side. So they were throwing bodies over the over the wall of plague victims, you know, to thwart these, you know, kind of really evil, as you said, uh, methods of killing people during war uh, with these treaties. What countries were this again? Because this sounds familiar. Like when I was researching my topic I came across something about specifically saying like poison bullets. Did that come about with your research on this? Uh, that did not. They just basically were saying projectiles with poison on them were not permitted. Um, I did see that there, you know, not all countries were present at these conventions. And even the countries that were there, for example, at the, the Hague regulations, and of course, there were there were multiple versions of the Geneva Convention. You know, they kept making it more and more modern. Um, the Hague, Hague regulations were the same way. So their first convention was in 1899, and then they had more in 1907. And in this one, they specifically called out the prohibition of using projectiles with the sole object to spread asphyxiating poisonous gases. So. Again, they're not calling them microbes. They're calling, you know, they're gases. And of course, there are, there are chemicals and things like that. But that on that one, the that was ratified by all major powers except for the United States. How surprising. Actually, I thought Germany also didn't ratify it or Japan or maybe that was after World War One or World War. Yeah, II. well, I. I think there, you know, there are multiple Geneva conventions, there's the Hague Convention. So all of these, if you go back to the even that first one, you know, where it was very sort of vague in today's day, you know, you shouldn't be causing, you know, you don't have unlimited rights to, to come up with any way you can think of to kill people during war. And they explicitly say you shouldn't be poisoning people or using projectiles that would, or materials that would cause unnecessary suffering. So the wording, I think, it might be something we can touch on in future episodes about how the language is changing to prevent bioterrorism. And yet the greatest movie in America right now is about unnecessary bombings. Oppenheimer. <laughs> wow, thanks for making that explicit. Anyway, so I thought I just thought that was interesting that that they talked about, you know, have been trying to to ratify and to prevent exactly what we're trying to talk about, you know, as far back as the late 1870s 70s or so. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I wasn't aware that bioterrorism and ethics of that kind was involved pre-World War II or even World War I. So tell us about your story of World War I. Well, I'm going to start the story by saying that this particular disease was first described in 450 BC by Hippocrates. And also, I know we were just talking about the Civil War, that uh, this particular ailment was a huge problem during the Civil War. At the Confederate Remount Station in Lynchburg, Virginia, nearly 3,000 horses died. And from that, yeah, so this is a little bit different take. If you think of all of the things that horses and mules do for for folks during wartime and peacetime, they are vital. Yeah, especially before the times of tanks and cars. That was the major mode of transportation. Yeah, and so... And carrying things. Yep. Well, there is a bacterium called Burkholderia malae, and that is something that killed those 3,000 horses right there at in Lynchburg, Virginia. So while it wasn't a bioterrorism act, that probably did affect the, the war effort um, when you lose your mode of transportation and moving supplies around and everything that had to have a big effect. Once again, microbes changing history in the course of wars. Yeah. So you. I wonder how many wars we can say is the was one because of microbes. Disease is called glanders, and it is zoologic disease that is highly contagious between horses, but it can also be stri- spread to humans. And it's a little bit harder to get into humans, but they've known about this disease for a long time. They isolated the malay and they have figured out how to weaponize that. And you mentioned the CDC's list of bioterrorism agents that they are somewhat worried about. And the Blanders is on there in the category B of crucial biological agents, because it is still around and uh, a little bit scary that it is still considered an agent. And in a single year, in the, this is in the 1980s, the Soviet Union was produced more than 2,000 tons of the dry agent. Oh, my God. And it is still around. You know, obviously, they haven't had a case here in the United States in a long time. But in other third world countries where they rely on horses more, it is still prevalent. And they had a little bit of an outbreak in the Middle East a couple of years ago. But let me get to our uh, story here about what happened during World War I with this. So the speculation is, and of course, there hasn't been a whole lot of research on this, but what they found is that German spies. And there was a actually a secret agents before the U.S. came into World War One. They were attacking kind of the inactive allies. The Germans were, and they there was a German physician who was in the United States, and he had a a lab. And they went up and down the seaboard, and they were sending people on the seaboard that were sending the horses over to war, and they were uh, using needles that were infected with landers and poking the horses that were in the stables getting ready to go off to war with glanders. And for horses, 
what ends up happening is they get have a lot of mucus production, their eyes can get all gloopy in their noses, and they can get very ugly lesions, and they end up having respiratory problems. So they are not fit for war, and then they can spread it to the other horses once they get there. So Poor horses. Yeah, so like... I had never heard of this before and that so not that this is a fun topic, but it is really interesting. Who would have thought that you know, not only would you be thinking to kill soldiers, but all of their support system, including horses and, and mules that obviously were used for getting food and everything where they needed it to go for war. And it's another doctor. Dirty deeds of doctors. Yeah. So they found that from Norway to Russia, it also spread to uh, Romania, Spain, Norway, the US and Argentina. So the secret agents were sent with microbial cultures and instructions to infect the shipments of allies of, to, of their horses, mules, cattle, and sheep. This all kind of began in uh, 1915, and they went, and, you know, at that time, a lot of animals were being uh, shipped back and forth in that time to the to the war front. So that doctor was uh, Anton Dilger, not a nice guy. So he was raised in Germany and trained as a physician returned to the U.S. in early 1915, set up a basement laboratory in D.C., and he grew cultures, both of anthrax and glanders. In D.C.? Come on, America. In D.C. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is in the time before, you know, we were too, you could ship anything. So, they were going back and forth with vials. So they were suspended in liquid in test tubes. Some longshoremen were recruited by Germans. They just wandered around the stockades where the animals were collected for shipment and jabbed them with these uh, needles. And that went on for about a year. I hate this story so much. I know. <laughs> So Dr. Dilger returned to Germany in 1916. And died of cholera? I hope he died of cholera. Well, I did not see anything on that. But they also, in the mid-1915, uh, mid a captain by the name of Rudolf Nadalny from the Berlin headquarters, and they think he was probably Dilger's boss, they shipped anthrax and glanders cultures to the German embassy in Bucharest for Bulgarian agents collaborating with the Germans. And they were going to target Romanian animals that were being traded to Russia. And so they think that a lot of the Russian livestock was also infected uh, with the glanders and, and that we don't know how much it, effect, it affected the war itself, but you can imagine there was there must have been some effect for it because people would have to, you know, the animals would need to be you know cared for. So that takes up resources. When they died, they would have to be buried. And because the, you know, the microbe could continue to exist on the bridles and the blankets and all of those types of resources. So all of that was buried with the horses. So there was a lot of work, a lot of manpower involved in having animals die of this. And then they would have to 
thoroughly clean the barns and the water and all of that. So a lot of resources would be taken up with this. And it's just, I think, I think it's fascinating because I, you don't really think of those kinds of holes on a war, but it must have had some effect. I mean, it does sound like one of the more successful, if one can say, or most more effective campaigns that we've talked about in bioterrorism. But man, do I hate it when people pick on animals and try to kill them. Yeah. They're not part of your war. Leave them alone. So unfair. And also, this is a time period where vehicles weren't that popular. So any ammunition or artillery is being moved by horses. Mm -hmm. People being transported to and from the warfront horses. Mm -hmm. A lot of their transportation relied on horses at that time. But they still lost. And then we had World War II. Which is a topic for another day. Yep, but there's still more of this if you want to hear more. Oh, okay. Keep going. thought that was the end. No. So Spain was neutral at this time, but... And that's how they got the Spanish flu. Well, and that's Germany targeted the Spanish horse trades that were being shipped to France and also Portugal. So the that also led to the cultures and agents being sent to Argentina, which was a major supplier of cattle and horses and mules to the Allies. And there was a German secret agent, Hermann Wuppermann, who traveled by U-boat carrying the cultures from Croatia to Spain, and then by commercial steamship to Argentina. So that's a long way. Yeah, for be traveling with cultures and stuff. Think of all the things that co- that could go wrong, you know, when you're carrying potentially deadly microbes. I mean, it happens more than you probably want to know. Yeah, we probably don't want to know. But and at that time, who knows, you know, how they were carrying it. It's probably not as secure as we can do it today. You know, this is 19. 19- also probably don't want to know. Yeah, probably don't want to know. So he apparently did not establish his own lab in uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. Where do you think he got those the replenishment of microbes? Any guesses? America. What's something that horses really like? Hey. No. Apples. Sugar. Sugar cubes. Um. What was that show with Ed the horse? The Talking Mr. Ed? Yeah. That's where I got that from. He likes sugar cubes. He likes sugar cubes, yes. It's the only thing I know about that show. (laughs) So, yeah, Berlin would ship the microbes in sugar cubes. Rude. Yeah, to Buenos Aires, and then they would feed them to the horses. So, yeah, it is still considered an agent of bioterrorism. And like I said, it's apparently the Soviet Union has in the 1980s, made a whole bunch of it. Which I'm sure we'll have to do a whole podcast on the Cold War and how micros played into that because it wasn't just the bomb. Yeah, and it, it isn't as easy for humans to get it, at least from horses. But if it is, it can be aerosolized. Humans can take it in, you know, you can get it through your eyes or your mouth or your open wound. And it does not take many of the, they call them, germs, but we'll call them microbes. It doesn't take many to become infected. And the treatment for it would be antibiotics. But even with treatment, there's still a 50% uh, mortality. Is that for horses, humans, or both? 
That's for humans. Wow. So it can't, yeah, it can't be spread human to human. But if somebody wanted to weaponize it, it certainly would be a pretty deadly way to do it. And you could also kill a bunch of horses and that also would have big effects on on the world when you think of the things that horses do. Not, not so much in the U.S. anymore, but in other parts of the world, they are still heavily used in transportation and farming. And But regardless, they don't deserve to die for human disputes. No, they don't. And yeah, so that's glanders, which I had never heard of, but and hopefully we don't hear of it again, but it's a possibility. But we may also hear about it in our World War II series because it comes back to the scene. Probably, but for now, I would love to leave it because that was terrible. I agree. Great. So, Microbial Nation, thank you for joining us on the Micro Moment podcast. We hope you enjoyed exploring the fascinating world of microbes and their impact on our lives, our history, and our war culture. Yeah, that works. Right. Your support and interest in the wonders of microbiology keep us inspired and motivated and keeps us digging into rabbit holes, although we might do that anyways because we're just such... Micro nerds. Micro nerds is a good word for it. We are incredibly grateful for our fantastic listeners like you, and we couldn't do it without your curiosity and enthusiasm. As we continue to uncover the mysteries of the microscopic realm, we invite you to be part of our journey. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Micro Moment podcast on your favorite platform. And if we're not on your favorite platform, how are you hearing us right now? And if we're not on your favorite platform, you had to go to a secondary platform. Please let us know because we'll try to get ourselves on your favorite platform because we don't want to make this too hard for you. And stay tuned because we're not done with bioterrorism. Oh, no, we are not. Please give us a feedback and ratings. It helps us reach more curious minds like yourselves. And we truly appreciate it. We will be diving into World War II. Are we having special guests for World War II? I don't know. We don't know. We might have special guests. You'll have to stay tuned for that, too. We may or may not. And World War II, I don't even know how many episodes we might do because, like, honestly, so much bioterrorism in World War II. Yeah. I I don't know. It, it depends on how invested we get into researching the topic. And you know we're going to get invested. Of course. Yeah, I don't do short of like 20 hours of research for each podcast. No, you you dive into books upon books upon books. Which is insane because I work a full-time job too. Yeah. Dedication. Anyways, hold on to your butts for next time because it's going to be a doozy. Stay curious, stay safe, and keep exploring the marvelous micro moments from history today and into the future. Bye. Bye. Bye.